Talk with Ben Tompkins. What's going on, everybody? How you doing? This is Real Talk. I'm Ben Tompkins. We are presented by nobody currently, but these are the mixtape days. How long will be in the mixtape days? I don't know. I don't know. I think we're going to have an update coming uh, soon-ish. Early 2022, looking pretty good. All right. But how you doing? This is what we got for you today. My man, Jim Phipps. A retired veteran who currently works at Starbucks. He's got a really awesome story. He's got a pretty cool why, as in why he gets up at 4.15 a.m. in the mornings, why he retired from retirement to do that, and why he believes so deeply in putting a smile on people's faces. My man's got some good stories from being over in Iraq Served 24 years in the military, so thank you for your service, Jim. And we spend a lot of time talking about that. We spend some time talking about PTSD, what that's like coming back from combat and serving deployments. We talk about a little bit of the differences in resources that are available to people who are active duty service members and people who are in the reserves. And we also spend some time talking about What it's like being a military family, being a dad. I know that's got to be tough. We talk about that. And also, if you've ever heard of the Triangle of Death, it's a region in Iraq that is mostly known for heavy combat, a lot of insurgency, a lot of attacks, not only on American soldiers, but Iraqi soldiers as well and their forces. It was just one of the hottest zones in the entire war, okay? So it's a place that you don't want to be in, and yet there are people who are tasked with going through the triangle of death every day. Jim Phipps is one of those people, and not only was he tasked with this, he was one of the guys that was tasked with driving a truck, and he worked in the transportation corps. And whenever they needed supplies, weapons, ammo, anything... He was driving a truck through the triangle of death constantly on his deployments. And he served other deployments, so that's not the only thing he did, but this was something that he did a lot. So Jim shares some stories about what that was like, including one of the closest calls, and a story that brings up some of that survivor's guilt, some of that PTSD, some of that why wasn't that me, holy shit, that could have been me. And if you want to hear that story and how it unfolds, then obviously you'll have to listen to this episode. But all of that is in today's episode. It's really great stuff. I absolutely adore Jim, and I appreciate him for sharing everything that he did. I know it's not easy, but um, I hope that if any other vet out there is struggling with any of the things that we touch on, that maybe this episode inspires you to reach out to somebody whether it be a friend, a family member, somebody that you served with, or a therapist, and you start to seek out treatment for yourself, please do that. Please, please get better, okay? Start feeling better, and uh, people do care. So I think listening to this, I hope that if anybody is at that point, then it helps them move past it and, and even just begin to think about moving past it. That's a win, okay? We'll take that. We'll take that. So That's today's episode. Coming up in the next several weeks, as you guys know, I am on the road. Right now, I am currently sitting taping this intro in Maddie Subaru, and I'm sitting in the parking lot of the Indian Wells Resort, 
We're hanging out in Palm Springs today and yesterday, and tomorrow we're going to be heading into L.A. to go visit my buddy Justin Stein, shout out, and we're going to see Tame Impala at the Hollywood Bowl, and I think it's going to be a hell of an experience. I'm really excited about that. So, Maddie and I are going to be doing little mini episodes, and tomorrow we're going to be dropping the very first one, so it'll be a recap of the first several days Uh, We've been to Joshua Tree, we've been to Palm Springs, we did Halloween at her place at the Grand Canyon, that was fun. So we're going to recap the first several days of the trip and then drop a few of these every couple of days and after big major events. We've done a camping trip already, we've done a few hikes, so this is something that we said that we were going to be doing and uh, I'm glad, I'm glad. So we'll be posting episodes at random The thing that you need to know is that Wednesdays, every single Wednesday, I'm going to have a new episode, a new interview, nothing will change. We'll just have a couple of bonus content episodes for you, dropping whenever during the week. So that's a good thing, right? Extra free content, that is a really good thing for you. And um, it's fun. It's it's fun that uh, Maddie enjoys this stuff enough to want to do it with me. And I think she's pretty good at it, by the way, as well. She's got a cool voice. We've done episodes before together, never released them. And maybe we'll talk about that on our episode tomorrow. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it, as well as doing everything else on this trip. We're just a couple days in. Again, we're going to be gone until November 21st. So we're spending about three weeks, a little more than three weeks on the road. We're camping in a lot of places, so we're saving some money there. But it's a hell of a journey and it's a hell of a way to reconnect after spending March until November separate while she was at the Grand Canyon and I was holding it down in Louisville and um, we're excited about what the future holds for the both of us and we made it we made it through this really really difficult and challenging and testing time so now we're just kind of kicking back and enjoying our time together and just booling out here booling bro In the next several weeks, I do have a lot of people coming up that I'm really excited about. Next week is going to be my buddy Shane Fowler. The week after that is Tim Schladen. After that, the week of Thanksgiving, we're going to have my guy, we're going to have my guy Jordan Toma dropping. And then the following week, my buddy Tim O'Neill. So we have content for days. We've got content for weeks, as a matter of fact, more than a month. I'm sitting here looking at this shit like, damn, we are sitting on gold mines. The episodes are going to be really great. The interviews are really great. And I'll have bonus episode from me and Maddie's trip. So I'm just living, man. I'm just at a place where this is what I am uh, doing, you know? Um, I've got some exciting stuff that uh, I can't share yet, but I'm just kind of enjoying living life before... Things maybe get a little bit serious and uh, more serious than they have been, I guess. Um, I don't know. More structured, maybe, is is the right way to put it. But uh, still going to be doing the show, still going to be doing table talks, still going to be doing everything that I want to do and more. And I'm really excited about that. So I don't have kids. I, me and Maddie aren't married. I have the ability to take a month and go on the road. And the beauty is... I taped all these interviews before I left, so I'm just editing and making edits on the road, and then I brought my podcasting equipment with me, and honestly, the inside of a car 
is a prime recording studio because it's so tight. There's not a lot of places for the sound that I'm generating inside of this vehicle to escape. So you get a really nice sound booth. How about that? It's like I used to sell sound equipment and educate architects on the dynamics of sound. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's it's true, it's true, it's true. And um, yeah, everything I've done every step of the way has built me up to the place that I am now. And uh, I gotta say, it's a pretty good place. I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy where things are at and I'm pretty happy where things are headed. But that's all. I'm done blabbing, man. I got a really great episode here with Jim Phipps and I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. And if you enjoy this as much as I did sitting on the other end of the table listening to Jim share his story, please share this with somebody else that you think might find this episode interesting. And please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me grow this show. Shout out to everybody that's done that. But please, it takes two seconds. Leave me a quick rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and I fucking love you for that. All right, without further ado, here is Jim Phipps. Okay, we now welcome Jim Phipps to the show. Jim, how you doing? I'm good, Ben. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. So, Jim... I see you in the mornings at Starbucks where you work, and you told me that you're retired. You don't have to do that, but you do it for a pretty special reason. And I thought, you know, this is exactly the type of person that I like to feature on the show and talk to. So share with us what the reasoning is behind you wanting to work in, I guess you could call it fast food industry, but, but a service industry where you got to deal with people all day long. You know, when I retired, um, I, I just found myself sitting around the house really doing nothing, twiddling my thumbs, probably tipping a few back in the evening is a little too much. So I needed something to, you know, just to get me going in the mornings. And, um, you know, I was looking for really anything in, in, a, in a managerial, uh, some sort of a, a warehouse management type thing. But, but I've got three kids under 16 at home, so I knew that I... I had to find something that fit me working in the morning, going home, taking care of them, their needs, what they need to do, where they need to be, um, you know, what limited schoolwork that I can offer help with. <laughs> That's a different category. Um, you know, and looking, looking, nothing really fit. And my, my wife says to me, she goes, man, how about Starbucks? I, I looked at her. I said, are you crazy? I said, I can't work for Starbucks. But. I said, what the heck, let's try it. So I, I sent in my application, and lo and behold, they called me and, um, you know, interviewed over the phone, went in, and I'm a people person by nature. So, you know, landed there, and I work 5 in the morning till 9.45, Monday through Friday, no weekends, and I just love interacting with the community. It's it's off the beaten path, so it's not a it's not an interstate fast food. It's not a downtown based fast food. It's it's somewhere where, truly and honestly, I feel like Bill Murray on a day to day basis and Groundhog Day, uh, <laughs> same people, same time, and I love it. I've I've made a lot of friends, um, a lot of connections, a lot of business connections, a lot of a lot of people. But most importantly, what keeps me going there really is just to see the smile on, on at least one person's face. And I, I think there are more than one, one person a day, but that's really what 
you know, if I can, if I can start people's day off with a hot cup of coffee and a smile, then my day's complete, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's really why I continue to do it. I just, I enjoy the interaction. You get one anytime that I come through there, certainly. Yeah. I always look forward to seeing you in the window. And it's funny too, because, uh, I'll, be pulling around the corner and then I'll see you poking your head out to see who's coming next yep. as if you can't wait to see the next person who's going to be there because you're going to see a friend or somebody that you enjoy seeing on a regular basis. Yeah, it's great. You know, there's, it's all walks of life, uh, guys, girls, old, young, black, white, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I, I get people come through the drive through and all of a sudden you'll hear a kid screaming at the at the microphone Jimbo Jimbo <laughs> and uh you know that's because that's what they've done every day for the first 2 years of their life and that's you know that's what they know every morning with mom or dad and and it's those times that really um you know put a smile on my face when people continue to do that you know they feel comfortable enough to continue the you know coming in and and building more than just a cup of coffee it's building a friendship sure yeah how long have you been there? Oh gosh, day eighteen, maybe two thousand eighteen, July. So three years, okay. a little over three years. Yeah, I moved back to Kentucky and this area, Prospect area in specific, about mid twenty eighteen. So as long as I've been back in my second stint of Kentucky, you've been a mainstay in the mornings. And you said something earlier. What was it? about Starbucks initially when your wife recommended that that made you go, oh, I don't know if that's for me. You know, the whole Seattle West Coast based thing. Uh, I don't want to get into politics on this <laughs> on this radio show, but it just wasn't my fit. I spent 24 years in the Army and, um, you know, I just thought, you know, we'll see. I, I, I didn't know how long I would last, but I know how to put things in boxes mm-hmm. and I don't go there. I don't, I go there for, you know, like I said, one thing, one thing only to get a smile on people's faces. If someone wants to talk politics or whatever, that's fine. It, it's never at length because I got to keep my window times down to a minimum, you know? Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just, I don't know. I made it fit. You know, I, I, I just make it fit and I enjoy it. Uh, Starbucks is a great, great company. Um, we've got kids in there who are, you know, full-time students with ASU, and they have great benefits. Uh, one of another main reason why I'm there is for the insurance for the family. It's it's a it's a great company to work for. Good people, and they take care of their employees. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you deal with people all day long, like you were saying, all different walks of life. So, being in a position like that, I would imagine that you pick up on things, you probably have a pretty good instinct on people, on what type of energy they give off. If you're dealing with, let's, let's okay, quickly, what's your average window time? Or what do you try to keep it to? So we try to keep the window times, hopefully under 55, 50, you know, you want to be in the 40s usually. Um, but that's all, it's all relative. In my eyes, it's going to sound bad. Don't hope I don't get fired for this. But in my eyes, window times are window times. Those customers aren't coming back unless you spend the quality time. And quality time may not fit in our window times. Sure. So every customer is different on a daily basis, Ben. Um, you know, 
I've had people come in who I've talked to every day or a couple times a week for months and months. And um, I don't want to get into people's personal business, but I found out this was this was about a year and a half, two years ago before the pandemic that that one of my customers was was sick. And, you know, I just talked to her, put a smile on her face every day, you know, rolling out. We, we laughed together. Sure. So a couple months later, this guy comes through the drive through and I said, hey, man, I haven't seen you in here before. He says, yeah, I wanted to come by and and see who's putting a smile on my wife's face every day. I said, oh, boy, I'm in trouble now. Uh-oh. I said, that's, yeah, that's me. He goes, man, you don't understand what that's doing in our household. He said, thank you very much. She's sick, and she comes in here because you put a smile on her face every day. So at first I was scared shitless, you know, if I could say that. I'm sorry. No, absolutely. Um, but that right there made what I do and what I try to do just that much more uh, special. So everyone's got a different story, yeah. every single person. And um, can't relate to everybody, but I try to relate to most people. So thank you for sharing that story. That's a great story. When you think about it in terms of like, let's say the reason I ask is because you've got like maybe you probably don't spend more than two minutes at a time, right? Depending on if stuff is taking like a big order or something. Two, three be. minutes. Yeah. Okay. So during a shift or during a day, how many people do you think come through that you interact with? Oh God, that, that's a good question. Um, hundred, three, three hundred. I, I I would say from from opening to to when I leave, uh, it could be two to three hundred. I would imagine that that could be totally off off base, but I'm not a mathematician. Neither neither am I. Believe <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah. We, we don't like doing math around here. That's why I got a cash register in front of me that tells me the change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if we had a calculator, we could probably narrow it down to a to a, a you know a pretty accurate number. But like that's a good range, okay? So and and my point isn't to do math. My point is to make that you're dealing with a couple hundred people a day. So in those interactions, you pick up on things like what type of day somebody's having, the energy that they give off, if somebody's in a rush or not, or if somebody can be bothered to speak to somebody that they because. I think a lot of times with um, with restaurants or industry workers or as an Uber driver, sometimes you get that like service industry treatment from somebody, but then you get a bunch of other people that are, are genuinely happy to see you. So I'm just wondering what you do in terms of um, when you get somebody that is is maybe hostile or isn't being respectful or polite how do you let that roll off? What are things that you tell yourself in order to not let that interaction roll into the next person who's about to pull up in 30 seconds? There are plenty of times where where things like that happen. And um, e- each is different. But for a majority, a majority of the time, it's it's really is coffee. And that's that's what I say. I said it's just coffee. It, that's all it is. That there's no sense in. They can get aggravated, they can get mad, but I I truly believe in the old saying, "Kill them with kindness." And sometimes that makes them even a little more hostile. Oh yeah. Which maybe I do it on purpose sometimes. Sure. But you know, it, it's never gotten to a point where where anything has come to fisticuffs or anything like that. And if something does happen with a customer, typically. I know the next person rolling up, 
so we just laugh about it. You know, yeah. there have been times where they're like, man, that, that customer, what the hell was wrong with them? And I just say, it's, you know, is what it is. Yeah. You know, deal with it. And I, I never do I, never does it roll over to another customer, any type of um, disgust or anything like that. Usually it's turned into a joke. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think you've learned about people in interacting with everybody like that on a daily basis? You know that, like I said earlier, everybody's got something going on. You never know. You never know deep down, you know, the things that I have going on mentally, emotionally, physically, family. For the most part, I try to treat people with respect. And if I see something, you know, like the the lady who's sick, she's still fine. Good. But if I do find an edge, let's call it an edge, um, the edge is there for a reason. It's come out for a reason, I think. Mm -hmm. It's come out because they're comfortable with me. It's come out because they know I like to talk. But I think it's come out for a reason. And that reason is to talk about it. And that has happened on numerous, numerous occasions. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the things that I've talked to customers about in the window. You know, I I think it's good conversation. It's sad conversation sometimes. I hear a lot about kids. It just, just, I enjoy it. I I enjoy talking to everybody who comes in there. I think it's funny that sometimes what will end up happening is we won't share things that are really difficult to share with our family or our brothers or our sisters, some of our best friends, but we'll share anything with a stranger or somebody that we don't think we're going to see again. I would imagine you probably have a lot of things that people tell you that you're like, I can't believe. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. That's (laughs) yes, for sure. Um, And, you know, none. it's not a soap opera. It's it's never nothing has really ever been that way, but um, you know, there there people pull up and and they've become comfortable with me, and and yeah, they they tell me stuff that is just off the wall. Like oh, that's okay. I that's all right. Thanks for telling me. I appreciate that. And they pull away. I'm like Jesus Christ. I <laughs> I didn't need to know that. Yeah. You know. But I don't mean that negatively. I mean if people tell me whatever they want, but when they pull away, it yeah. You know, it's okay. It makes me feel good because they're able to do that. Sure. You know, they're, they know that it's completely comfortable. So I, I don't mind it. It's a flattering thing almost. It's, it's humbling to know that people feel comfortable enough sharing some of the things that they do with you or anybody else that can relate to a statement like that. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of times working there. It's humbling at times. Um, the amount of people that now I've, Lost a lot due to COVID. They put espresso machines in their own houses or, you know, they just realized, man, I, either I was spending too much money or, you know, I can I can do without coffee. So there are those that I haven't seen in a while, but, you know, COVID hit hard. And uh, you move on and see them out. It's sure. interesting seeing people out and about. <laughs> you know, when it, when I first started working and then I'd see somebody out there, they'd be like, Jimbo? I said, yeah, it's not just a torso in a window. It's not just a machine turning, you know, handing out coffee out the window. Um, so I really enjoy what I do. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the people I work with. And if I didn't, I wouldn't wake up at 4.15 every morning to go do it. Sure. So. Now, this is almost a second 
lifetime for you in a sense, like a second career for you, because you told me that you had retired from the military, which by the way, this, so uh, people, um, I don't think I ran through this at the top, but yeah, that, that was when you told me that you were retired, but that you did this just to put a smile on people's faces. I was like, that's, that's awesome, dude. So then you said, yeah, I've been in the military. I served in the military for 24 years. So when did you get in and when did you officially retire from that? Joined October 6th, 1994 for college money. That's what I initially signed up for and uh, went off the boot camp, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. One of the best times of my life. Uh, you know, you hear about boot camp and it was scary at times, but it's all relative. You make it what you make it. And I enjoyed it, I had fun. And I'll, I'll never forget the day that I graduated boot camp. I was in for four or six years and going to be done. And they played Lee Greenwood, God bless the USA, at our graduation. Mm-hmm. And I, I sat there and, and 162 of us, a bunch of us crying. And it was right then and there that I I kind of made the decision then. I knew in the back of my head I'm going to do this long term. And uh, so I, I stayed and 24 years later, November 1st of 2018, called it a career. What branch? So I was in the Army via the Ohio Army National Guard. I have 15 total active duty years between deployments and and full-time service. I worked for a a counter-drug task force up in Ohio since 2010. Um, 24 total years, 15 of active duty time. It wasn't sexy. I'm I'm not a Green Beret. I'm not Special Forces. You know, I'm not I'm not uh, one of those guys. Served with a lot of them, know a lot of them, but I spent 24 years in the Transportation Corps, and uh, wouldn't change it for the world. Like I said, not as sexy as all that other stuff, but just as important. But been a lot of places, done a lot of things, and had a lot of fun, and uh, wouldn't be the man that I am today without it. Thank you for your service. Yeah, no problem. What do you do in the Transportation Corps? So I was a truck driver, 88 Mike, and you do a little bit of everything. Everybody at the end of the day in the military is a grunt, an infantryman. Uh, a truck breaks down, you got to hump it. But our job in, in the Transportation Corps was was to move supplies, ammo, people, goods, equipment, parts, to move it where it was needed. And that's really... You know, that sounds like, oh, that's, you know, you're just, you're, you're a truck driver. Yeah, you're a truck driver. But it depends on where you're driving that truck at. Could change a lot. What happens uh, if you have to go through the triangle of death? Uh, I spent many, many months in the triangle of death in Iraq. And, um, you know, that was my first deployment, 2003 to 2004. And that's my transportation company. We spent several, not several, many, uh, 10 months 15-month deployment, and uh, that's all we did, move supplies around Iraq throughout the Triangle of Death. So it's a little different than, you know, FedEx and something, you know, <laughs> from Louisville to, to wherever. Yeah. Um, you know, because we're constantly on the road, and, and that's – we're not unsung heroes. That's silly. Uh, you, you hear that. But it's dangerous out there on the road. You never know where things are coming from. So you always got to be sharp on your toes and – we get things from point A to point B, sometimes via C, D, E, and F. Sure. But 
you know, that's that's what the transportation core is. Can you describe for our listeners what the Triangle of Death is? It was one of the hottest zones in Iraq back in the early days. Baghdad to to Balad, over to Fallujah. Um, it was just really a lot of IEDs were prevalent. That's when at the at the beginning of the war. That's when they really started creating these IEDs, and they were trying to disrupt. Uh, I mean, that's the first thing that you want to do. They want to disrupt how and where we can get supplies, because if our soldiers on the ground, if the troops on the ground can't get the supplies, then they're screwed. So the Transportation Corps became one of the number one targets mm-hmm. for terrorists. So Triangle of Death or Iraq or Afghanistan, it's all dangerous. So it's just a bad, bad place to be. Did you feel safer moving or when you were stationary? When, when we were on base, living either on the bed of your truck for months at a time or, or living in, in what they called circus tents, didn't really matter. We were pelted with shots every day. I mean, it was, it was 20, 30, 40 mortar rounds a day were coming into post. So really, if you woke up every morning, you were good to go. You're out on the road, same thing. You never know around what turn something's going to pop up. So you just rely on your buddies to the left and to the right of you, hoping that everybody's doing what they should be doing. And, um, you know, thankfully, my deployments, my units had, you know, we, we made it through. We, we survived. So Every troop? Every troop in my direct, my direct units that, that I deployed with, yes. Every trip? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. I mean, we we saw a lot, but um, you know, thankfully we all came home. Yeah, yeah. I got to imagine that when you're going on one of these trips, any time you step out to drive, you don't know if you're going to run over something that sends the vehicle up into the air. You don't know if you're going to come into a canyon and there's people up there that are about to rain down on you guys. I would imagine that every single time you go out there. Your adrenaline's got to be pumping. You're, I mean, how do you psych yourself up for that if you're the one physically driving the truck? You just, you, you fall back on, you know, you fall back on your training and you fall back on, uh, again, those around you. You didn't think twice about it. You know, a lot of times people think, oh, God, you got it so rough over there. No, nah, that's bullshit. The ones who have it the worst are the spouses and the loved ones back home because they're the ones who are watching the TV every day and they're the ones who are sitting on edge and they're the ones who are waiting for a knock at the door. We just go out and do our jobs and that's it. That's what they're, we're there for. That's what we've trained for. And you just go out and do it every day and pray to God that you make it home. And uh, that's what we do. Do you listen to music when you drive? Uh not officially, um, but yeah, we, we could. We'd have you know radios going to to pass some of the time, but pretty much you're constantly you're on communications uh, with other vehicles in a convoy, with higher ups in the air or at other locations. You know to find out intel, to find out what's going on out on the road. You just got to stay focused. It's not like taking a Sunday drive. Um, it is, you know, your adrenaline does pump but uh, you just got to stay focused. Now, you guys would work with some of the people like Jeremy Renner in that movie Hurt Locker. He was like a bomb sweeper. Mm -hmm. 
um, which was, I think, based on a true story. Like, I think that was a real guy that was credited with a number of different IED de-escalations is probably the wrong word, but disarming, diffusing bombs. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So when you guys would go out for a route, would people sweep those, or would you be walking out or driving out into roads that something could have been placed there the night before, and you'd have no idea? You know, in the early, in the beginning, you kind of just hope for the best. You had a forward observer vehicle that was going out there and trying to keep an eye on everything. And then it was, it is everybody's eyes on. And then as time progressed, they created these mine sweeping vehicles that you would put out in front of your convoy and had a big attachment on it. It looked like a, it looked like something out of the driving range that's picking up all the balls. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what it was. And that weighed so much that it pressed down the ground enough that if it rolled up on an IED, it would explode 20 feet, 25 feet out in front of that lead vehicle. It could potentially do damage to that vehicle, but their job in that front lead vehicle was also to keep an eye out, look for suspicious things. And if we ran up on a suspicious something out there that we thought looked like it could be something, you know, we halted and you call an EOD and they come in, do their job, because that's what they love to do, blow shit up, or not. If it was nothing, it is what it is. It's better nothing than something. So if something happened out there, we'd call them out to come defuse the situation. One of the riders that I've had in the car, they were an EOD technician, and we talked about that. I, I can't remember what episode it was on, but the story itself is called Bomb Squad, and might be worth going back and listening to because I I get a lot of military people that are in the car and um, I've always thought that that was a pretty interesting job to have to do to walk in there with that suit and that suit is gonna probably help you from shrapnel but if a bomb goes off in your face yeah 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 but those uh, those guys and girls that do that are almost angels in a way and yeah and, and saved then, a lot of lives yeah saved a countless countless lives and then you guys and girls that are in these trucks bringing the supplies or whatever people need that keeps it going so you guys i'm sure anytime you showed up it's probably like hey they're oh. here we've got some stuff yeah. coming in yep yeah i mean that's you know everybody relies on somebody and you know, the military is, it is a well-oiled machine. Ain't one thing that's going to work without another, mm-hmm. you know, and you hear oftentimes, you know, the army make fun of the air force or the Marines make fun of this or that. At the end of the day, I served with every one of them and I, I, I wouldn't change any of it. We all know we got each other's back. Um, so really it's just the military, it's a, it's an interesting 1%, maybe 1.5% now of a population, and uh, y'all work together. Did you have any close calls? Here and there, at times. Uh, every day was a close call when you're on base. I mean, honestly, there a, a, a rocket or a, a mortar could hit 100 yards from you. I would consider that a close call. It's a, it's a definite pucker factor. Sure. When I was in Afghanistan... You became so complacent, the wrong word, but you just became so used to it happening every day that when the alarms went off, because once something was detected, a, a siren would go off. There were times you just walk out and just keep doing what you're doing, because at the end of the day, 
a brick wall or something like that, if it's a direct hit, isn't going to save you. So call it stupidity. But sometimes you would just completely carry on and think, uh, just another one. Jesus, here, here we go again. <laughs> you know, many, many close calls. Anything while you were on the road? Uh, always something on the road. We weren't hit that often. We had some other platoons that were hit a little more often. But, you know, I really believe that if you were doing the right thing and you were doing what you were supposed to be doing and you had all hands on deck, you know, everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. No one wants to screw with a convoy of gun trucks, mounted 50 cows and 240 Bravos and, you know, soldiers who are loaded to the guild. If you saw that coming down the road, what are you going to do? Not fuck with not, them. Not fuck with them, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we were lucky. We were very lucky. And I attribute that to good training, good timing, and a serious show of force and never letting anybody get to us or push us around. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm somebody that also believes that if you go about doing your life and living your life in a way that is mostly complimentary of others, you lead with kindness and vulnerability, and you're a good person. At the end of the day, like you're, you're a good person, that good things tend to happen to those people. Things tend to work out. But I also have to reconcile that with the notion of bad things also happen to good people. Absolutely. And I'm sure that you were in a lot of situations over there and certainly worked with a lot of people in the military that it's just like, why me? Why my company? Why did this have to happen today? On all the times we've ever done this one thing, why wasn't it me? Sometimes people are haunted by that. You know, they... They are on a route every day, and then for whatever reason, they it's just the one day that they get sick or take off, and then something happens, and that's survivor's guilt. So I would imagine that's a really, really hard thing to reconcile. So I, that's funny that you bring that up. First deployment, there was no going home for what they called R&R. When it did evolve into, yeah, we're able to send soldiers home, we as the guys who had been around longest decided that we were going to let the younger kids. There were When I deployed... You know, we deployed out of Ohio and uh, went down to Virginia and then from Virginia trained up and shipped over to Kuwait. We had guys who were assigned to our unit who were still in what they call advanced individual training. And that's after boot camp, after your initial boot camp. And they were training to be truck drivers. And they knew because they had been told, hey, your unit's deployed. They're sitting in Kuwait right now. So when you graduate here, you're going to go home for a few days, and guess what? You're going to hop on a plane and, and head over. And uh, I had been doing a lot over there, and I was just getting my leadership could see that I was getting burnt out. So they, they sent me on an R&R down to Cutter for three days to a little naval station there just to get away. Sure. Um, they could see... They could see I was stressed, and, and they, you know, Phipps, you need to go ahead and take breaks. So I went down with, I think, two other people from our unit. And come to find out, the second day that I was gone, my convoy got hit. And the guy who was driving my truck was about six foot seven, six foot eight. And an IED went off hanging from a telephone pole, so it went off right in front of the vehicle. And we didn't have up armor stuff back then. We, we were in old uh, Vietnam era vehicles, so nothing, nothing was up armored. Um, 
We filled our doors with sand, as much sand as we could. We put sandbags down on the ground. Couldn't put anything in front of the windshield because you just needed to see out of it. And uh, an IED went off, and uh, he took a, a three-inch piece of shrapnel right to the chest. Mm. Now, it embedded in his flak jacket, so he wasn't injured. Mm. Had that been me, it would have been a three-inch piece of shrapnel right through my throat. So you don't know you know, when it's going to happen. Had I been there, had I not been on that three-day getaway, maybe it would have happened, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Who knows? But when you think about it, like, oh, shit, that hit that guy who was six foot seven in the chest with me sitting there, It sure enough, going to take a good chuck of my head off. Yeah. So you think about those things, and um, you think about them for about a minute when you're there, and that's about all the time that you really can think about it. And then you just drive on and continue on with the mission. So I was lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you were on the R&R that day and that, um, you know, sometimes, look, there's a benefit to maybe being a little bit on the shorter side there in that sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. Yep. <laughs> what about other times? Because I think what happens a lot is people who suffer from PTSD or that go on once they retire and they're living the civilian life. While you're there, you said you think about it for a minute and then you just kind of get on to the next thing, right? But if you have more time, more downtime and more time to think about some of that stuff, I think that's probably what what I've at least been told by other people who have been haunted or suffer from PTSD is that I'm trying to go to bed at night and I can't stop my mind from wandering and remembering and bringing me back to these places. And then I'm now haunted with these questions of why wasn't I there? Why wasn't that me? Or why was I there? Why was I there in the first place? There's a lot of different ways that people deal with that. I'm wondering if you've ever dealt with any PTSD or what your experience would be like with some of that stuff. You know, PTSD is a big reason why I believe, and and I think it's been documented, is is a big reason why, you know, veterans uh, turn to alcohol uh, because it numbs the brain. I mean, it, you know, and I'm not going to lie. I, I, I do it. Um, I, it's the first time I ever talked about it publicly, but, um, I drink beer. I don't wake up in the morning and, and start drinking the heavy stuff or beer or anything. I, you know, my, it's, it's not a up in the morning and start drinking. It's in the evenings drinking beer or wine. Um, just to sedate, uh, uh, and not really knowing that that's what I'm doing. You know, it's weird. Um, this is going to sound so, it's going to sound like I'm an alcoholic for Christ's sake, but you know, when I don't have a lot or when I don't have anything at all, you dream because you don't have anything there that's really set your mind at ease. Mm -hmm. And subconsciously it comes back in your dreams and it's not all boots on ground in theater um you know oftentimes i'm my family is involved in some sort of a dream some way or another you know my wife and kids and and it's something military related um it everybody deals with everything differently uh you know and and uh PTS is real, Um, and there's also um, 
there's been so much talk about it, I believe, from when you're coming home from a deployment or coming home from something. There's so much talk, so much, oh, you're, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. I think that some of it is pushed on some people. Not that it's not there, but, you know, World War One, World War Two, you know, even a, a, when when those people were done with a, a combat deployment, they were put on a ship most times, and they spent a couple weeks at sea coming home. They had a lot of time to decompress. They had a lot of time to beat each other's shoulder to cry on. They had a lot of time to, you know, talk about what they had just gone through. Mm-hmm. In this day and age, when you come back from a deployment, you're thrust right back into society from the Vietnam era on. I mean, you're, you're thrust back in. So there's there wasn't that internal healing or just being able to talk about it amongst everybody that you just went through it with. Sure. You know, you had a week at your demobilization site or something like that, and that, that was it. Then you're back at it. So everybody deals with it differently. And it is real. Do you think that's because of the way that transportation works now, that they had to be on the ships, whereas they just bring you on a plane and oh, then you're for back? for sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it's just easy. You hop on a C-5 or, a, you know, a C-17 and you, you fly halfway across the world in two days, yeah. you know, and um, you don't really get that decompression time. You don't get that time to cry or to laugh or do whatever. You don't really get it. What about at base once you guys get back? I mean, because it sounds like that would be a really healthy no-brainer thing to create a week of let's bring some professionals in, let's decompress. Is there anything like that? There is. There is. A little bit different between active duty and National Guard deployments. Uh, When you're active duty, you're going back to a base that that you you live your full time there and they've got everything set up. All the doctors are there. The hospitals are there. uh, The clinics when you're a reservist or a guardsman and, and you return from the deployment, you want to get the hell home, mm-hmm. you know? So you're at a, a demob site and you got some people saying, oh, tell them everything, tell them everything. Well, fuck no, I don't want to be stuck here for four more months. I want to go home. So, but you learn deployment after deployment that you got to tell people what's going on. But still, at the end of the day... um, as reservists or guardsmen, once you spend that week, typically it's about a week, maybe a little bit more uh, after deployment, you're talking to doctors and you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're getting physical, you're, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that. And then you go home. So you don't have that full-time clinician there. You can't go to your platoon sergeant and say, hey, Sarge, man, I'm I'm having nightmares. All right, Joe Snuffy, you, I'm going to go to sick call. Joe Snuffy's getting paid every day, continuing to get paid. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a guardsman or a reservist. You're working at Walmart. You can't go to your supervisor and say, hey, boss, man, I'm having nightmares. I can't handle this. Well, you're going to have to find deal with that on your own time. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't have we don't have the exact outlets that an active duty component returning from a deployment has 
at their discretion. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have plenty of people I can talk to. Sure. But it's all on my own time. It's all on my own dollar. You yeah, know? those resources exist different ways. D- different ways. They're there. Sure. But they're not there in the exact capacity. Um, so you find it's a little it's a little more difficult to reach out because you got to make a living. Right. You know, the guy on active duty is still making a living while he's being assessed for PTSD or while he's being assessed for this or for that. Um, so there, there is a difference how it's dealt with. I would wonder what, uh, what could be done there. It seems like that's a pretty big thing to take on, but I would imagine that somebody could definitely get people on board with trying to get something called to action to bring awareness to the fact that there are people that are going into <laughs> that are going into uh you know situations where they might not come back and when you're over there in the trenches it's not their active duty their reserve it's every man or woman is in a helmet and has the flag on then you come back and your accessibility to Reacclimate yourself to society is different for you guys and girls that are reserves. And honestly, I've met so many people who are in the Army National Guard or that work in reserves. Some of the people that I went to school with that did the ROTC programs to get their school paid for that now work and are in the National Guard to keep that status going. But, but to think that my friends and people that I've talked to and met have different benefits that are available to them, even though they're just as liable to get lit up or lay their life on the line and pay that ultimate sacrifice, it doesn't seem fair to me. It's, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've talked to several doctors about it, you know, when I was up in, up in Ohio and it just, it, they're trying, they're trying, but it's, it's hard. It's, it's a whole different animal. Um, I don't know what the answer is because if you start putting every person who's got a problem back on active duty to have it taken care of, that's going to overload that system. Um, so I don't know what, I I don't know what the answer is. Ultimately the answer is as a leader, always making yourself available, which I have, you know, since my last deployment, I was a platoon sergeant. Um, I had about 50 soldiers underneath me and, um, yeah, I, I cared for them and there are still some that, that reach out. Uh, there are those that don't and that's okay. They deal with things other ways. Um, but y'all, you know, y'all try to work with each other Sure. for the most part. And that, that's, that's one of the best ways to, to deal with it as well. I personally think the military should extend benefits to to all of the people in that because you deserve the same things that people in the active duty get in terms of medical or psychological testing and and the resources so that you don't have to seek it because how many people really raise their hand and ask for help well i don't want anybody to take this the wrong way what we're talking about it it's available it's just not available in the same capacity and it's there's a willingness there there's got to be a willingness to self-identify and say, yeah, I got a problem. And then that ball can get rolling. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not saying that it's not there. I don't want anybody chiming in saying this guy's full of shit, blah, 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 you know, whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's just dealt a little bit differently. And, uh, you know, I don't know. 
who who knows um, what the answer is. But at the end of the day, the the first thing is knowing individually that I got a problem. Mm-hmm. And where do I go? Who do I talk to? What do I need to do? Sure. If it gets to a certain level, then yeah, you, you're going to be put on some sort of a status, I would hope, that's going to keep the roof over your family's head and keep the food on the table. But there is just that little disparity. Do you think that when people come back from Afghanistan or Iraq or any of the tours that they've served in the last 20 years, that things are easier or more difficult for them to reacclimate into society? Um, you know, I, September 11th changed a lot. I mean, my God, in this country, we were, everybody had everybody's back that afternoon, you know, and it was on. And when, when people were coming back from deployments, it would, there was positivity. There was, there was hope. There was, uh, joy. And I think for the most part that has continued throughout this era of, you know, the Middle East, um, that helps knowing that, that your country support you. It, it does help. Yeah. Is it necessary? No, but it feels damn good. You know, when, when you're coming off of a plane and there's a, a ton of people there, you know, yelling for you and thanking you and, you know, um, I, I do not tout being a veteran. I have a flag on my apron at work. Um, I don't talk about it that much, you know, when my kids were younger and I'd be off on veterans day and, and I'd go, I'd go into daycare, drop my kids off, you know, and they'd be like, Oh, where are you going to breakfast this morning? Where are you going? Just going back home and I'm going to cook my English muffin and my egg and, Oh, where are you going for lunch? I'm probably going to make that too. Um, it's good that people identify that and are willing to, you know, reach out to you. But I don't think it's really anything that, that any veteran out there, I, I don't tout it. I don't, you know, use it for my own benefit other than the benefits that I have earned. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, I just think having a, a society and communities that back you is, is positive. Where were you when September 11th happened? Um, I was working for my future father-in-law in the mortgage business. I was a, a loan processor and, uh, I was sitting in an office and he came out from his office and said what was going on, went in and watched everything unfold and knew, you know, knew at that point that life that life was going to change. I mean, we went immediately got called up to go stand up units and, you know, move throughout the country and and go back to your units and everything was secured. Everything was on lockdown. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, then life changed. So you went in around 94. So it's like operation desert storm around that time frame. Uh, desert storm was 90, what? 91. Okay. I was born in 92. 91, yeah, 90, 91, 92-ish. Okay. Um, So I graduated high school in 92. Thanks for pointing out that you were born, (laughs) man. Um, You're like an old bastard. That's only almost 30 years. Um, So, yeah, I just, you know, I had gone off to college after high school and 
partied a little too much and figured I need to get my head out of my rear end, so I joined the military. Um, you know, and like I had said earlier, it was, um, yeah, it was just for college money, and it turned into something bigger, turned into a career. And then fast forward eight, nine, ten years, whatever the math is on that, in 2001, you have already gone into uh, the reserves, and at that point, you're you're doing both, or had you still been active duty at all or no I, I wasn't active duty at all I was National Guard I was one weekend a month you know going to school working just a, a regular nine to five doing doing one weekend a month and um, had some pretty cool life experiences I got to go to the 96 Olympics and what they called guard the games um, and then September 11th hit and the big dogs got deployed then the people that we don't know about you know the the horseback riders, the special forces guys who went in and, and were looking for bin Laden. It wasn't until really the the government had decided to, you know, we're, we're going to focus on Iraq. Uh, that's where a lot of the, the terrorists are coming from. And uh, in, in February of 2003, uh, February 8th, I had I went back home to my hometown where I grew up. Parents still live there. Um, I had gotten engaged several several months prior to that. Uh, I went in to drill on a Saturday, February eighth. Sunday, you know, went after drill. Probably went out drinking with the buddies. Did whatever. Went back to my parents' house. Spent the night. Showed up at drill the next morning, and um, our lieutenant came in carrying what was called a warning order mm -hmm. and sat everybody down and he's like you know at some point in time we all knew it was coming we all knew it was inevitable you know um he says hey we got a warning order here and he starts reading this what they call a warno and uh while he was reading this warno our admin sergeant came in with a mob order so that changed the game right there it wasn't hey you're on alert for you know he read this mob order and he said, be back in three days, be back at, you know, zero 600 on Wednesday, the 12th of February. And we're going to start ramping up to deploy. So yeah, I was 150 miles away from my fiance who lived in Columbus, Ohio, and was going, uh, going to Ohio state and went home, called my dad. I said, Hey dad, does you think the jeweler has that wedding bands ready yet? Maybe. He goes, why, wow, what's going on? I said, well, I'm leaving in three days. So, you know, pucker factor sets in, and one of the coolest things ever, I went home to my parents, drove the two and a half hours from my hometown back to Columbus, and had asked my fiance to come over, you know, that night to my apartment. She was living on campus. And uh, when I got home, she was there, and I just hugged her. And she it literally instantaneously knew what was going on. She knew that we had gotten our marching orders. And uh, we had spent the past couple weeks talking to people. You know, what if, what if we talked to her pastor? And what if this happens? And what if this happens? So we called her pastor that night, Sunday night, and put a wedding in motion for the next morning. And February 10th, 2003, we got married to about 70 people at our wedding, went and had a a, you know, a little impromptu reception at a local restaurant that gave up the room. Wow. Yeah. So it was really pretty neat. Um, 
And then I left for 15 months. So it's, it's a pretty interesting first year of marriage. It <laughs> <laughs> was no fighting or anything like that, you know? A lot of, a lot of things. Um, so at that point, you know, you're activated for however long. Got home from that, 2004. Uh, went back to guard status, you know, one weekend a month. And, and then it had become a lot more training. You you found yourself not doing two weeks of summer. It was it was a little more, and they kept up in it a little more just because they knew that the rotations were going to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 2009, I decided to go full time with the guard, so I went went full time with them and uh, was full time from 2009 to 18 when I retired. So total of 24 years. What does full time mean? So I worked for a counter drug uh, the 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 National Guard's counter drug program. I was in drug and alcohol prevention. So I would work with these grassroots organizations who put together ways of doing things. And we would just bring the the military mentality and some of our troop leading procedures, some of the ways that we did things that were proven successful. Mm -hmm. We could take it into their community and maybe work it into what they were doing in their communities to help prevent drug and alcohol abuse amongst the youth. Mm-hmm. And we were there just as a, a support. Um, you know, like so consultancy. Yeah, you, you could call it that. Um, a lot of, I don't know if you ever heard of the, the National Red Ribbon campaign. I have probably in elementary school. Probably heard so, about it. You yeah. know, they, so every October. Uh, so we were big into that. We went into, God, I, I, I reached out to so many schools, and we had so many events. Um, I'm t- ten thousand kids we would reach in a in a week and a half period. Wow. We'd go out and, and talk. Uh, a team of us would go out and set up, you know, inflatables and and get engaged with the community. Uh, and that, that's what I did for a long time, uh, amongst other deployments and other trainings and three months here, six months there, you know, this that. Uh, but my I still that was my full-time gig, but I was still with the Transportation Corps. So I was still training, you know, that one weekend a month and throughout the summer in my military occupational specialty, which was the, the truck driving. Nice. Yeah. Would you feel comfortable talking about, um, like, why we were there or morale? Because it seems to me like I know your job was never to question anything, but... yeah. Being in Iraq, yeah, I don't know how, how much you would want to get into any of that. I guess, do, would you ever look back and regret maybe being there as long as we were? Or No. I, You know, I don't regret a thing. Um, when you could see in the faces of those civilians, you know, that you were there to help. Mm-hmm. When you could see it in their faces— that's what made, you know, the world a difference. That's what made you realize we're here for the greater good. Iraq, this is about the size of Texas. You put 50,000 people in an area the size of Texas who want to kill you. There are a million more that want you there, that need you there. You got to look at it that way. 50,000 is not a lot, but in, when you're in mountainous regions and you don't know where that 50,000 is coming from, you know— it is a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of people that hate you, but there are a lot more that love you and want you there because you, they know that you're there for them. 
And um, that's what, you know, that's what I had to keep in the back of my mind. You know, it's, it's greater than me. So right, wrong, and different, you know, that's way above my pay grade, you know? Sure. Um, but like you said, you, you, you do what you're told and, you know, whether you have regrets or not, I don't. I enjoyed uh, my time in the service. Do you think there'll ever be peace possible without a presence there? And when you look at the way that things fell as quickly as they did once we left, do you think that that was the right move to pull out? I don't know. Um, you know, it it happened. Um Again, way, 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 way above my pay grade. And we see what happens to people who talk about things and decisions made and stuff like that with, you know, with the, so probably better not to get into that. Um, I, I hope and I pray that one day, just like everybody does, will it ever happen? They've been fighting over there for ungodly amount of time. Um, you can hope and pray that, that things change one day. Yeah. Yeah. I hope. I hope so, especially for the people that aren't as privileged to be born in America or that live in war-torn regions like that, that have to wake up and that's their reality every single day. It's just, it is unfair, and that's unfortunately just the world that we live in. Yeah, it's what they know. That's, you know, it's what they know and what they've lived with, and it's hard to change. Yeah. Yep. So then, <laughs> to get on a lighter note, is there anything that you learned while you were over there that you now take back to your approach and how you do life over here as a civilian? Is there anything that has stuck with you about the way in which to conduct yourself or your life that you now try to impart onto others? You know, I just, I, I, I'm a failure at times. No one's perfect. But I try. I try to be a good influence. I try to live a good life. Do I screw up sometimes? Yeah. But I truly do try to be a good person and try to treat everybody with the respect that they're giving me or don't treat them at all. You know, um, but for the most part, I treat people how I want to be treated and you know, just try to make a difference in somehow, some way, one person a day. Honest to God, I know that sounds so idiotic and, and stupid and, oh, you're so wishy-washy. That's not, really, that's not it. Try to make a difference in anywhere I can, uh, really. So, I don't know. I say some stupid shit sometimes, you know. <laughs> I, I, I was not a little early here, but there are just some things you learn from the military, you know, that I say sometimes. Early is on time, on time's late. I try to impress that upon people, my, my kids and, and whatnot, and just, you know, just treat everybody like you want to be treated. Everybody's got a story. You don't know what it is. You don't know what they're feeling that day. So give everybody the benefit of the doubt. We haven't spent any time talking about your family. You're a dad. You've got three children. Three too many, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. So was it difficult being a military family and being a dad? And did you ever miss some of that stuff? Or? You know, l- like I said earlier, um, when I deployed to uh, Afghanistan, I had a, uh, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And my wife is the brains of our operation, so she's the she's the executive. And, and like I had said earlier, I, I truly feel 
I had it easier than what she did. I had it easier. I woke up, I had meals, I had transportation. I didn't have to worry about laundry. I didn't have to worry about dishes. I didn't have to worry about what's for dinner. I didn't have to worry, 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 worry. You know, we were there for one reason to do our jobs and thought about them. Not often, often that sounds, that sounds stupid, but it's not, it's, it's that we, I had one, my goal was to get me and my guys and girls back safely. So they couldn't be on my mind all the time or else something could happen. Okay. So having a wife and having kids and a family, they're going about business as usual. There's no one there catering to them or driving them where they need to go. So my wife is working, you know, nine, 10 hours a day, taking care of three little ones, you know, going to dance, going to soccer. Um, it was difficult. Times changed tremendously from 2003 when we had snail mail. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there was no, you were lucky to have internet. And when you did, it was nothing. So it was truly the U.S. Postal Service. Fast forward to Afghanistan. I was lucky to be off the road when my kid had her first day of kindergarten. So we got to, I can't remember what it was called now, Skype. I think it was Skype. Sure. So I was in my hooch and uh, I got to Skype and, and watch my my oldest, who's now 16, get on her bus the first day of kindergarten. <laughs> so it's little things like that that helped. Technology helped. But no, I, I mean, it, it. my wife's a great woman. She's, you know, she's awesome. And she was able to handle everything that she needed to handle with the help of family. And um, I think you have to impress upon your kids kind of how to feel, you know, it's not all woe is me. It's not this, you got to be positive. There can be times when we're apart, when we're not, you just got to make the best of it and uh, not turn everything into a negative, turn it into a positive if you can. What's your favorite thing about being a dad? Man, just watching them grow. Um, I love my kids. I I'm, I'm tough. I'm a tough dad. They know that. Sometimes I'm a prick, more times than not. Um, Same. But, you know, it's all right. Uh, I I love watching them grow. I love watching them do what they do. I love watching them interact with other people. And I love it when I hear someone say, man, your kids were so well-behaved. You know, Um, we had them for this many hours or we went here and, and they... Jim, they, your kids were good. I said, Jesus, huh, why don't they do that at home? You know? <laughs> and then you hear that means you're doing something right at home because they know, you know, they know how to act. They know how to treat people. They know kindness. They know how to, to carry themselves. You know, they're only 16, 14, and 12, but, but they know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. So last question. This is typically where I like to end things yeah. is what are... If I said to you, Jim, real talk, fill in the blank. What do you think would be a sentence or a way to follow up that statement with some of the things that you believe to be truest about life or people or just living? You know, I it happens every day at serving people at Starbucks. I'm there for a set amount of time and people pull up and it's been three and a half years now. And so for the most part, I you know, most people know me, but there are those that who are newer come in. They're like, man, how, how the hell are you in such a good mood at 5.50 in the morning? And 
you know, my response to that is I woke up this morning, number one. My wife and kids are up. What the hell can get any better than that? I mean, I've seen some shit. And I've been some places where I didn't know if I was going to wake up the next morning. So it puts now dealing with life, serving coffee, it really puts that into perspective. And I truly am blessed, and I do thank God every morning that I wake up because it's easy not to. Mm-hmm. It's easy to give in. Some people think I'm full of shit. There's no way that this guy can be so chipper and so this and so that. <laughs> All right, whatever. I'm not always like that. You know, I have my times. Sure. But for the most part, I try. I, I really do try to embrace waking up, being healthy, having a healthy family, and just putting my best foot forward every day. I think sometimes people don't want to believe that other people could be that happy because they're not that happy, but that's right. just all a projection. But right. thank you so much yeah, man. for everything that you do, yep. not only in, in our community and brightening, certainly my day. Whenever I see you sticking <laughs> your head out of the window, I'm always like, here we go. How yeah. are we doing? And uh, thanks for coming over and sharing everything that you did and talking about some of this stuff. I know it gets delicate and I never want to cause harm by stirring any memories or any feelings or anything up when we start to discuss things that are heavy in terms of any kind of a trauma. And I'm thankful that you were willing to share and and be vulnerable about those moments and some of the things that you deal with and some of the other people deal with because it takes strength and, and courageous people like you to be able to talk about that stuff so that we normalize it and people who do want to get help or seek out the camaraderie that they might miss from being in different teams or companies or wherever that they have that and they know it exists. And um, I'm proud to know you, man. I think what you do is awesome. And thank you so much for coming over and sitting down to talk with me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I enjoy seeing you too every day. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Jim. All right, Ben. Thanks. All right, man. That's all I got. Again, special shout out to Jim. Thank you so much for coming over and sharing. And thank you for doing what you do, man. Seriously, it's really fucking cool. And I don't say that often. And I wouldn't say that unless I didn't absolutely mean it. And I certainly wouldn't make the time for you to come to the studio and have this conversation and put your story out there if I didn't think that it was really something that I feel inspired by. And that's genuine. I truly feel inspired by somebody doing what he's doing because no one asked him to do that and certainly he doesn't expect any kind of praise or anything for it that's not why he does it he just he does it because that's who he is he just wants to put a smile on people's faces and i applaud that because there's a lot of me in jim doing what i've been doing with the uber stories thing like yeah a lot of it is Sure, it's to get stories and everything like that, but what are the stories that I always find the most fascinating and I love the most? It's the ones where I'm truly feeling like I'm helping people and somebody tells me, thank you so much, gives me some great compliment, and I'm like, dude, I do it just because I know it needs to be done because I want to be for other people what I need for myself. I want to be the change that I see in the world. And Jim is somebody that when I think about that statement, be the change you want to see in the world, he's literally doing that. He's literally doing that from a Starbucks window. And I fucking applaud that. I stand. Thank you for your service, not only at Starbucks. Thank you for your service in the military. 24 years. Shout out. 
And thank you for coming on the show, Jim. Thanks for making a difference, man. You do make a difference. You do make a difference. Guys, that's it. I am back next week. Please drop a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll say it one more time. Shameless plug. And uh, be on the lookout for mini episodes from Maddie and I's trip and for Shane Fowler next week. All right. I am Ben Tompkins. That's real talk.